Welcome to the pilot episode of Logistics of Perception, a new podcast about media, politics, art, culture, theory, mentalities, architecture, etc. So, hello, Matthew. This is the uh, first episode of this podcast that we're starting. Hi, Jason. How are you? Uh, I'm well. I'm well. It's uh, it's Tuesday here in uh, late June. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful day in New York City. Yes, we are we are podcasting to you from the heart of downtown Manhattan, uh, New York City. It's 2014, and uh, let's let's do this. Yeah. So I'm uh, Matthew Hockenberry. I'm a PhD student. Uh, here at uh, New York University's Media, Culture, and Communication Department. Uh, sort of a background in technology, but for the last few years, I've been a fake, increasingly real media historian uh, doing a project on uh, a media history of logistics, thinking through the different media forms, uh, mentalities, structures that have sort of contributed to the logistical world and the logistical way of doing things that we now find ourselves experiencing each and every day. Uh, what about you, Jason? Yeah, my name is Jason LaRiviere. I am also a PhD student in this Department of Media, Culture, and Communication. Uh, I suppose I have a background in uh, philosophy with a little bit of uh, film studies mixed in there. And yeah, I'm working on a dissertation uh, which is going to look at uh, some New media art and some new um, theories around aesthetics, uh, basically through the lens of uh, compression as a technical and philosophical concept. So I'm sure we'll have uh, ample opportunity to talk about uh, these projects in more detail as the in the course of uh, the pod. Yeah, absolutely. So why don't we talk a little bit about um, the origins of uh, the idea for doing this and, um, you know, how we came to start this uh, Logistics of Perception podcast. It comes basically from uh, a Tumblr that you started, is that right? Yeah, so, uh, you know, with your uh, encouragement and perhaps prodding, you know, I wanted to explore the, you know, now increasingly uh, less popular but uh, still, you know, intriguing idea of using Tumblr as a, you know, curatorial space, just sort of a casual, you know, uh, amalgamation of different uh, ideas. And I happened upon this idea of the logistical fiction, thinking through how logistics, uh, which, you know, we're going to define, I think, in just a little bit, uh, has really come to influence not only the way we actually live our lives, but the way we dream our dreams. And, you know, the fictional worlds we construct often have very tight, uh, you know, sometimes impractical uh, logistical conceits that I think are 
quite interesting and that we've been exploring on the Tumblr. Mm-hmm. And I think um, you know the purpose of the podcast is to expand our horizons a little bit and think through some of the uh, influences, uh, the critical theorists, uh, cultural artifacts that you know have contributed to uh, this this tight structuring of planning, designing, efficiency, you know, logistics uh, throughout um, the broader world today. That's right, yeah. And I think the idea here is to take a pretty uh, capacious view of what we mean both by uh, logistics and perception, right? So uh, hopefully this will encompass a lot of... um, you know, established and uh, recently emerging uh, discourses and critical vocabularies, right? I think uh, maybe we should, right off the top here, indicate some of uh, a debt, really, to uh, the person whom we take the title from, uh, the logistics of perception, namely uh, Paul Virilio, right? This is a uh, subtitle of one of his books, uh, one of his more widely read uh, works uh, called War and Cinema, colon, The Logistics of Perception. And this is kind of a a classic study of uh, the technologization of uh, vision in the early 20th century, right, when we have uh, things like uh, battle field uh, photography from biplanes during World War I, for example. So Virilio has this whole sort of theory and history of uh, right, the logistics of perception, right? What uh, technology has uh, allowed the human eye in terms of an advanced kind of view of uh, the battlefield, uh, and then we can kind of extrapolate out from there. Yeah, so basically we've moved past the colon. Uh, you know, we've forgotten war and cinema, and now we're only interested in logistics and perception. Right, but I think, you know, some of these, the more kind of violent consequences uh, we can touch on as well. Let's not, let's not forget about that uh, sure. as and, we go forward. You know, absolutely, logistics owes a debt to war in that is how, you know, we, we've come to have this term. And, right, um, so this is something that you're intimately uh, uh, aware of. You're working yeah. on this presently. Well, yeah, and, uh, you know... Thinking, thinking about Virilio in this context, you know, the sort of French influence here. I mean, logistics really, you know, arrived from this French context uh, in the Napoleonic Wars and the theorization of those wars in the uh, aftermath, you know, there. And um, we generally credit uh, this Swiss uh, theoretician who worked with Napoleon Jomini as the person who really codified what logistics meant in the modern sense. You know, in this classic sense, it was sort of the the household organization, you know, an accounting, logic, you know, all those sort of etymological roots come together. But uh, Jomini really saw it as the third part of the, you know, art of war, a third art. And so, you know, whereas, you know, strategy is, in Jomini's words, the art of making war upon the map and tactics is about what you do with the soldiers once they've arrived at, you know, that point on the map. Uh, logistics is really this force that binds them all together. Uh, you know, the the minute details of order and organization that mm. make strategy and tactics possible. And, you know, one of the things that uh, Virilio, you know, has explored and other media theorists have explored is how war has become increasingly logistical since that moment, you know, in the 19th century. 
Sure, sure. And of course, increasingly um, virtual in the sense of, uh, you know, drone uh, attacks, uh, uh, pilots in Nevada, uh, you know, having the ability to uh, push a button and, uh, you know, now uh, eliminate targets across the globe. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, dovetailing with, uh, with Virilio's thinking here, there's definitely a relationship between the expansion of logistics and the changing modalities of our perception, right? Mm-hmm. The way our gaze has changed from, you know, the even the general, you know, at the time of Napoleonic Wars and, uh, you know, the fighter pilot who's not really a pilot in the conventional sense, but is sitting in a, you know, remote station in, you know, Texas or Nevada operating a drone, you know, all the way across the world. It's sort of a different way of seeing the world. Mm-hmm. Right, which you know we might connect to the broad philosophical uh, movement of phenomenology, right? Which um, we we know was a major influence on uh, Virilio's work, right? So the kind of embodied experience of the world, which then becomes changed uh, in various ways when the body then is prostheticized by uh, various um, technologies at various scales. Right, so we could talk about nano uh, tech, uh, everything up to you know the complex assemblages of um, infrastructure and uh, architectures, and indeed kind of global logistical networks. Right, and I mean you know this gets into the uh, discussions we've had previously about the sort of you know romantic quality to Virilio's work, this very you know sort of Heideggerian uh, you know romanticism that's sort of you know, against technology as the inframing, you know, uh, order of the world, you know, the creation of the standing the standing reserve, and that sort of, you know, pushback against technology as a way of altering our perception of the world. Mm-hmm. And I mean, for Heidegger, uh, you know, this was, you know, modern physics, but for Virilio, you know, it's something as simple as the train, right? Because it's based on this phenomenology of speed and movement and mm-hmm. the sort of attenuation of that uh, vis-a-vis the human body and the technological augment. Mm-hmm. Right, right, yeah. So you can go back to, you know, uh, accounts uh, from the 19th century, uh, you know, people have fearing what the uh, what train travel would do to the human body, right? And then it's interesting because uh, cinema, uh, and this is sort of like ties into the Warren Cinema uh, uh, title, Right, so cinema comes along uh, 40 years later or so, and we get kind of the further... Um, the, the arrival of the train at the station? Yeah, uh, the a Lumiere a classic, uh, which actually is interestingly in, uh, incorporated kind of uh, metatextually or extratextually in uh, Uncle Josh at the Moving Picture Show. Do you know this one? Where, uh, Please tell us all, Jason. Only you know. Only now, several years after the actual uh, arrival of the train film, this is being sort of um, ironically uh, commented upon in uh, another. Well, this is actually an Edison film, I believe, uh, directed by uh, Edwin Porter, uh, who we see Uncle Josh uh, at an early uh, you know uh, Nickelodeon, and they're showing the. Um, the arrival of the train film, and then he, you know, as the myth goes, thinks it's an actual train. Runs and out is, of the, uh, yeah. And is, you know, 
perturbed by this. And then I believe uh, there's another film of uh, dancing, um, uh, a dancing couple, and he is sort of uh, takes umbrage at this uh, yeah, seemingly erotic, right. erotically charged uh, dance, and then sort of tries to tear the the screen down in you know this uh, kind of. Uh, puritanical, you know, uh, disruption of the apparatus. So it's a, it's a complex uh, film, and already it's like 1902 or something. Right, yeah, and I mean, it, it's also really highlighting the, you know, the complexity of the relationship between, you know, technology in, in the form of, you know, transportive technologies like the train or the drone in some sense, right, although it's not transporting a person, it's transporting our vision. Um, and, you know, media you know, writ large, right, because, you know, the right. image of the train is in some right. sense, you know, also uh, producing a disjuncture in that, you know, basic human phenomenology. Sure. So this is an important dialectic for Virilio, right, because while the world is speeding up, communications are speeding up, uh, transportation systems are speeding up, what it also actually means is that the body in some ways is slowing down, is be- being more stationary, Right when now we the world comes to us through the forms of televisual uh, mediation, uh, there's this kind of acceleration and deceleration push and pull happening. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, in fact, you know, the definition here of logistics for Virilio, um, which you know, I'll read here from this introduction we have uh, to uh, Speed and Politics, written by Benjamin Bratton. Um, I'm quoting from the bottom of 14 onto 15. This is the design of corporal discipline in the pursuit of the image of speed, in which, quote, the class struggle is replaced by the struggle of the technological bodies of the armies according to their dynamic efficiency, colon, logistics. Logistics Mm -hmm. always after the colon. Uh, So interesting. Right. uh, Two-part construction there. Yeah, but... uh, I mean, I guess for Virilio, it's really this uh, dynamism, right, is, is sort of the emphasis um, mm-hmm. as opposed to maybe, you know, the efficiency. But, um, you know, I think it's, I think, you know, Bratton cautions and other writers caution against, you know, taking Virilio as really just sort of a, a critic of speed, you know, as in mm-hmm. the increase of, um, as opposed to sort of the uh you know, any kind of alteration in the, the body's natural, you know, phenomenological uh, experience. So mm-hmm. slowness vis-a-vis the container ship is also, you know, part and parcel of this mm. vision of logistics as, you know, a new way of configuring dynamism uh, through efficiency. Mm. Right. So, yeah, we thought for this um, pilot uh, episode, no pun intended, Oh, no. I intended that pilot, right? Um, for this first episode, we would maybe sort of dive in and do something of a close reading of um, this introduction to Speed and Politics by Benjamin Bratton, who is a professor at uh, UC San Diego. And uh, again, so this is from the 2006 edition of Speed and Politics, yeah. uh, published by Semiotext. And the Bratton intro is called Logistics of Habitable Circulation. So, you know, I thought we might kind of signal kind of uh, methodological rigor unique to this podcast, I believe. Uh, yeah, no, that's what we will be known for is our uh, <laughs> extreme methodological rigor. Yes, uh, close attention to text. I read this on the subway, so I'm, I'm all ready. 
um, yes, habitably circulating. I was, you know, I, I was immersed in the in the exact modality that's being uh, investigated right. here. So, okay, I think let's just uh, read uh, what Bratton begins with here, because in a, in a way, this is a, a kind of mise on a beam, a collapsing of the uh, argument in toto into the the first paragraph here. Yeah. Um, so he writes, uh, and th- again, this is page seven in, in the book, if anyone, if the listeners want to follow along. Well, and this is also a copy of the introduction, at least, is also available on uh, Benjamin Bratton's website. Um, right. Although, you know, sans pagination. Right. So um, we encourage everyone to go to Bratton's website and, and look this up. Yeah. So he says, uh, quoting now, Paul Virilio's modernity is logistical. It doesn't directly deal with war, but everything that makes it possible. Logistics is the preparation for war through the transfer of the nation's potential to its armed forces in time of peace as in times of war. Modernity is a world in motion, expressed in translations of strategic space into logistical time and back again. It is a history of cities, partitions, trading circuits, satellites, and software of a political landscape governed by competing technologies of surveillance, mobilization, fortification, and their interdependent administrations. It begins as an archaeology of naval routes, strategic techniques, and urban distributions, and becomes an integrated world of events reduced to shapes and symbols, viewed and manipulated simultaneously on screens. So I'll stop there, but um, this certainly gets to uh, or reinforces uh, what you were saying earlier, Matthew, about uh, your take on the, well, I guess it's the standard take on the origins of uh, logistics. Yeah, and I mean, I, I As think... As preparations for war. Yeah, um, no, I mean, certainly that is the, you know, is the origin. And, um, you know, Virilio, you know, emphasizes certain kinds of actors in... You know his his narrative. I mean, he doesn't. I don't think, as far as I know, deal directly with this. Uh, you know, narrative of the Napoleonic Wars in the way that I was describing earlier. But yeah, as you say, you know, certainly other people have. But um, there's an emphasis on the state. You know, the sort of centralized view of logistics, the central gaze, and uh, you know that's I think quite endemic to this sort of French context where. You know the immediate aftermath of the form, you know, the formation of logistics as a you know equal part of the you know the arts of war uh, goes into the expansion of the French state and into you know construction projects, political projects, et cetera, et cetera, that are governed by that state. Mm-hmm. And um, you know my own work and other other people have explored the distribution of the discursive origin of logistics to other areas, um, particularly the United States where it appears, you know, sort of in the lead-up and then the, uh, you know, uh, post-Civil War moment where Jomini, for example, is one of the most widely read figures by, you know, uh, you know army officers in, on both sides uh, during the Civil War. And once we get to the U.S., we have, you know, Reconstruction, we have this continued westward push. We don't have the state or the corporation in the way we think of it today as a strong central actor. Instead, we have all these you know, dispersed divergent actors. So the question becomes, you know, in my mind, we think of war, certainly the history of war, as being, you know, the actions of large, very large actors, right? Uh, mm-hmm. The states, mm-hmm. you know, governments, you know, kingdoms, et cetera, et cetera. But today we have a very sort of dispersed view. I think the drone really crystallizes that 
sense of distribution, dispersion mm-hmm. um, of a mentality or a way of mediating logistical work th- uh, workflows that move beyond you know these large central actors into lots of different quite diverse uh, you know sometimes quite tiny sometimes large actors throughout mm-hmm. the logistical world right well uh, certainly what you're describing is similar to uh, the kind of narrative that we get um, in various places but you know we can kind of take it from Foucault and then as it was extended by Deleuze, right? So we move from something of a kind of top-down sovereignty yeah. to a uh, kind of enlightenment, um, uh, you know, um, discipline model uh, to what in the 20th century Deleuze calls like the control right. model. We now right? discipline so. ourselves. We now, you know, uh, think logistically ourselves. We don't need mm-hmm. the state to think logistically for mm-hmm. us. Or, right, so basic change in diagram also from, like, the tree mm-hmm. to the rhizome, right? So we have the decentralization of um, certain power structures. Right. And, I mean, uh, you know, Braddon also emphasizes this, right? Um, he talks here on page um, 13, you know, about exactly this this kind of thing you're, you're thinking through here with, you know, control society and the sort of distribution of you know, logistical operations. Um, so I guess I could just read this um, section from the top of page 13. Today, the speed of logistics is also largely computational. But that this is not to say virtual, immaterial, or distant. Quite the contrary. Supermarket shelves, for example, are a human interface to a vast internet of things, a network of supply chain, demand chain, and customer relationship management softwares, steel containers, offshore factories, intermodal exchange protocols, all forming an unimaginably complex, robust, and nimble assembly of everyday purchase commands with vast economies of production and distribution. Today's fleets in being are the exabytes and gigatons of component inventories in permanent transit, hurtling between trade zones as the consumable artifacts of their sponsoring corporations' technological and legal efficiencies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Um... So to, to invoke some more Deleuzian uh, terminology, you might say that now the world that we find ourselves in is smooth, right? Because right. in Thousand Plateaus, we get this distinction between the smooth and the striated. Right. right? So the, the space of the sea, for example, is a smooth uh, space. Well, right? and the container ship is, I guess, the, the vehicle that, you know, benefits most from the smoothness, right? The sure. smoothness of, uh, you know, common port interchanges, uh, common, you know, legal structures for sea trade, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. things like the Bill of Lading, et cetera. Mm-hmm. You know, so, media forms that have created this smooth uh, trade world. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's it's no coincidence then that, as you know, we mentioned earlier, um, logistics, you know, uh, is an ar- begins as an archaeology of naval routes, mm-hmm. as Bratton says. Right. Yeah, and I mean, in that sense, you know, to go back to, you know, the, the idea of the drone, you know, the... Uh, the sea is quite different from the land in that, you know, land routes are still quite difficult, right? Mm -hmm. So we have, you know, this sort of fantastical visions slash, you know, free, uh, you know, uh, television ad that, you know, Amazon had when they, you know, demonstrated their their drones, which, you know, will not exist for, you know, 20 years in any practical sense. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's the idea of making you know, the, the terrestrial world smooth, right? Because mm-hmm. the drone can just pick up 
move and then drop off, right? Mm -hmm. The same way that we imagine container ships work in the sea, although that's not quite mm -hmm. as, you know, nothing is as smooth. There are always jagged edges somewhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's creating a frictionless um, landscape, right? So to, to continue on 13 um, down in that same paragraph from what you were yeah. uh, reading before, so, uh, so Bratton writes, like in Andreas Gursky photograph, this frictionless landscape of interconnected objects and subjects is the constitution of a new architecture, one that relies on fragile alibis of virtual immateriality and procedural transparency to achieve the political, economic efficacy it enjoys. The reality of its performance, however, is also an uncontrollable accumulation of very real and opaque unintended consequences. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what do we think the unintended consequences are of this, uh, of this landscape that we find ourselves in? Well, um, good question. We might think of sort of the accident. Yeah. Right, which is another kind of key uh, concept for Virilio. The accident and the accident within the accident. Mm-hmm. So as soon as we have the railway, we have the derailment, uh, right? Uh, every new technological development contains its own sort of uh, failure. Right. It's kind of a Marxist, you know, idea of the system having within it the seeds of its own, you know, destruction. Although, you know, Virilio mm -hmm. is, you know, an unaligned left leftist, right? He's not a Marxist. But um, mm -hmm. it's sort of a very similar kind of idea, uh, you know, taken to, to a generalized sense mm -hmm. uh, in terms of cultural objects. Right, but I think even for Virilio, it's not so much this, um, you know, uh, Marxian logic of kind of like the master's tools uh, will eventually, you know, take him down or something like that. It, this, it's more of a kind of, um, you know, non-human logic of, you know, kind of indifference. Right. Right, like so the, the accident is just going to happen. So the master's kind of tools will occasionally cut the slave's finger, and that's right. unfortunate, right? But it doesn't actually destabilize the system. Yeah, I, I, I really see no sort of redemptive uh, project here. Yeah, uh, you know, I, and I, I've talked with you about this in the past. I, I like to think about it in contrast to, uh, you know, the Latorian idea of the slight surprise, which is the fact that sometimes you get more out of the system. It has a positive connotation. But the accident is sort of its inverse, right? It's the, the negative connotation that you get out of the construction of these non-human systems with, you know, non-human logics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, you know, the idea of the accident is sort of, you know, something that, again, to invoke the Latorian model, is, you know, sort of the, the result of uh, a, a kind of we've-never-been-modern denial of, you know, the way the world system has become. Um, and I, I don't mean the world system in that that way, but, you know, just sort of this generalized sense of the logistical mentality. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you think about things like maps, you know, the sort of, you know, classic Latorian, you know, immutable mobile, but it's in Virilio's world a sort of a different kind of phenomenology for, you know, experiencing and organizing the world than being there, right? Just like riding on the train, you know, ignores the basic bodily sensations of moving through the landscape by, you know, feeling it under your feet. Mm -hmm. The map allows you to look out into the world with this othering kind of gaze, right? You're not actually looking at the world, you're looking at this map, making operations upon this map that then have, 
effects or impacts in the world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, certainly. And as the map becomes uh, more and more a u- ubiquitous feature of uh, our devices for ubiquitous uh, computing, right, which is maybe a, I'd like to possibly dedicate a future episode to uh, that concept. Yeah. You become, uh, you become, but so uh, Bratton uh, sort of alludes to this uh, to refer back to the introduction here on 17. Yeah. As the diagram becomes an interface, when the map becomes the tool, personal individual social action becomes more logistical. The subjective manipulation of virtual symbols becomes a structural form of agency in this pre, uh, pre-formatted landscape of proximate and immediate contact. Consider how the political function of the urban gateway or boulevard to centralize and coordinate traffic and attention uh, has been augmented by web portals and search engines, interfaces to the vast exabytes of online data curated and mainstream for public accessibility. Yeah, Braden really likes that word, exabyte, huh? I don't even know what that what an exabyte is, actually. <laughs> it's a lot of bytes. A, a lot, lot of bytes, bytes yeah. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, you know, he he's creating this relationship here between the diagram and the map. And, you know, the question I have is, you know, how much of this is the map and how much of this is the diagram? Because if you think about diagrams, they're, you know, they're, they're more promiscuously abstract, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas the map, in theory, has some fidelity to a real geography. Right, mm-hmm. as you continue to abstract and abstract, you know, you get these very abstract diagrams, which in fact, you know, are brought up, you know, in the introduction and in the book also, you know, the the sort of very abstract diagram of, you know, Europe, right, that, that's mentioned in here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's this kind of abstraction, right, further and further abstraction from the real right. becomes uh, problematic in, in a number of ways. Um, not least uh, ethically, when we, when we again we think of something like the drone and the kind of gaze that um, the, the drone affords uh, power, right? right. So um, yeah, I mean it's almost uh, it's almost too bad that uh, you know when they made the Ender's Game movie that the special effects were so good because it would have been better, I think, if it had been you know what he's looking at is much more obviously a game. Mm-hmm. Right, because you know the big reveal, of course, spoilers of Ender's Game is that you know he thinks he's sort of in a game or a simulation style environment, but in fact he's you know actually you know committing genocide out in the world. Right, that's the, the punchline. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know in the remake that came out what like last year with Harrison Ford, um, it feels real, right, because the special effects are so good. But if you think about the map or the diagram, you know, strategies, the art of making war upon the map as this, you know, completely mediated phenomenological experience, right? I guess that's the, that's the question here is mm-hmm. where, where does mediation come in? Because in this romantic, you know, almost, again, Heideggerian sense, you know, it's about the personal phenomenological experience, but all of the ways we interact with the world, the diagram, you know, the interface, right? These mm-hmm. are all mediations of the world. And mm-hmm. the drone, you know, the pilot you know, who's like, you know, in Ender's Game, looking at this little simulation map, although possibly satellite imagery, right, grainy satellite mm-hmm. imagery, mm-hmm. Um, is acting upon the world in a completely inhuman way from, you know, what Virilio would describe as the human phenomenological. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right. And it's this kind of um, 
technological gaze, uh, which Alan Feldman uh, calls uh, the actuarial gaze. Yeah, friend uh, of the uh, podcast, Alan Feldman. Future friend of the podcast, <laughs> Alan Feldman. Um, so he has a, a really provocative uh, article from uh, 2005 called On the Actuarial Gaze from 9-11 to, to Abu Ghraib. And so he has this very gen- generative concept of the actuarial gaze, right? And, and we can kind of, we've kind of been talking around this in a way, but uh, so just to quote uh, briefly from, from this piece, yeah. uh, Feldman writes, an Enlightenment-inspired panoptical dream of control reproduces itself in the dialectic of the veiling and unveiling of hazards. Biopolitical threats are projected onto a multiplicity of world screens in order to hygienically filter and screen out negating penetrations from viruses to terrorists. I term this cultural political agenda the actuarial gaze, by which I mean a visual organization and institutionalization of threat perception and prophylaxis, which uh, cross-cuts politics, public health, public safety, policing, urban planning, and media practice. Right. So uh, what Feldman is getting at here is this simultaneous uh, ability to uh, screen like uh, the kind of the map, right? Right. Uh, literally view it on a screen, which is also a kind of hy- hy- uh, hygienically filter- filtering process where you're screening out sort of uh, all the, the messy Right, and presumably screening in all the, you know, the other info, info bits that you want to see, right? The, the pleasing things or the quote-unquote useful things, right? Mm-hmm. The things that provide you with, you know, a particular kind of, you know, actuarial utility. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if we get into the question of the logistical gaze, right, the question is, you know, what does that uh, look like, right? What's the sort of filtering that happens there? Mm-hmm. Right. And really, we begin to see with logistics, the rise of logistics, uh, war as visual culture, right? Um, this yeah. is a, a concept that, uh, that again, Feldman uh, alludes to in this piece, right? Um, so he says, uh, Hegel viewed the march of Bonaparte's armies across the national geography as materializing the idea of progress. The destructive progress of aerial bombing across the civilian train- terrain has much the same effect. Uh, modernity's shock was a conversion experience, creating new social subjects amenable to emerging technological commodity regimes and work disciplines. Right. So these kinds of uh, conjunctions between uh, modernity, the, mer- the modernization of war, uh, the kind of logistical uh, logics of war then being applied to various commercial uh, sectors right. are all sort of happening at the same time. Right. I mean, it, you know, it definitely seems as though the, although Feldman is, you know, also interrogating the state here, uh, you know, I'm much more concerned about the diffusion of these, uh, you know, ways of thinking into the sort of corporate world, right, particularly, you know, small business world, right, where it just seems to have have become very vogue to make, say, for example, a, uh, you know, augmented reality iPhone app that allows you to see exactly what you want to see, right, which is always for a convenience, right, some kind of dynamic efficiency, uh, a.k.a. some sort of logistical purpose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Right. I mean, even things like uh, this new, you know, Amazon uh, Fire Phone, right? The seem Fire to Phone, yeah. Tie into that kind of zeitgeist. 
Right. So they have, what do they have? This uh, new function called the Firefly. Right. Where it's basically uh, augmented reality, which hooks you straight into the brain of Amazon. Right. So presumably you find a you know, delicious commodity and uh, point, point the phone at it. Right. And the fireflies, because the, you have to look at the demo video because it's, you know, it's truly a fascinating marketing object that has been created because... A gadget. Yeah. A gadget. A, a kind of, it's, yeah, it's, it's a gadget with, with a particular design language, right? So when you, you know, point the phone at the thing, you see these lights fly around the thing recognizing it, mm-hmm. right? The fireflies. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was reading an article, uh, which we'll link to, you know, below this, I can't remember the author on uh, medium the other day where the question was raised, you know, what is being recognized here? Obviously in this case, it's whatever, you know, Amazon recognizes, Mm -hmm. which translates into whatever, you know, is tied into the demand chain. So what this object and particularly the marketing material for it evokes is this perfect smoothness between the demand and the supply chain. Right, the same right. kind of frictionless world that uh, right. Bratton was alluding to. Yeah, it is It is the gadget that you have in your hands to seamlessly bridge these two worlds. Yes, and of course, the gadget really has become the commodity par excellence. The gadget and uh, the app, yeah. The these gadget sort of and the app. small-scale nuggets that uh, building blocks, I guess, of a you know particular... Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of gaze of the world, some sort of mm. technological gaze. This is just kind of a, a random aside, Matthew, but uh, do you know where the, the term gadget uh, originates etymo- etymologically? Sorry. I don't, Jason, but I feel like you do. Well, uh, we can look to a number of uh, sources. It's kind of unclear exactly where the uh, word originates, but for example, in the... I thought it was the uh, the girl from Rescue Rangers, Gadget. <laughs> Uh, Well, interestingly enough, there's an 1886 book called Spun Yarn and Spindrift, A Sailor Boy's Log of a Voyage Out and Home in a China Tea Clipper. And uh, let me just briefly quote from this uh, interesting book. Then the names of all the other things on, on board a ship. I don't know half of them yet. Even the sailors forget at times. And if the exact name of anything they want happens to slip from their memory, they call it a chicken fixing, or a gadget, or a gill guy, or a timmy noggy, or a wimwam. Just pro tem, you know? Uh, so, here we see a gadget. The return of the uh, sort of naval influence here, right? And the right. tea clipper, you know, we have sort of this logistical vessel producing the gadget as, mm. a, as a discursive you know, uh, a kind of here. right, a, a term here for a, a kind of generic object, right, right, um, of which you, you're not sure the name, but then it kind of the the word develops over time. But uh, yes, the gadget itself as a as a cultural form is is an interesting idea. So the the fire is only you know the newest kind of uh, gadget of which I'm sure most people. Uh, many people will be uh, very interested in seeing how this new gadget affects our lives in the same way that uh, mid-century uh, gadgets uh, had such an effect on uh, the home life, for example. Right. right? So you, you get the, the kitchen gadget, right, uh, the, the blender and the, uh, the onion slicer. Yeah, and I mean, uh, presumably, 
you know, the, in the future here, the drone as gadget, right, as it uh, becomes a more widely accessible uh, piece of technology. I mean, we were just walking down the street the other day, and we saw someone, you know, producing a, a non-human gaze of the world by using a drone, a sort of a, you know, right. a shaky cam uh, crane shot. Industrious NYU film students. Yes, uh, I, I presume a, a student film, yeah. And, uh, you know, but it was really highlighting this sort of inhuman gaze that is produced by this gadget, which, mm. as you say, is the kind of thing that has become the building blocks of uh, our daily lives. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, right, this, this interest in the non-human seems to be one of these new uh, critical discourses that uh, I was alluding to earlier. Yeah, the... seems to have purchase. The oo, the oop, the speculative realism. I think people say triple O. I like oo. <laughs> it's kind of, uh, you know, we were talking earlier about the Derridian hauntology. I think oo is kind of like boo, right? It goes right in there. In a way, yes. Um, we're, ke- we're keeping this, by the way. I'm not <laughs> editing this out. This is gold. Um, future guest on the podcast, Aaron Pedinati, is working on uh, a dissertation now that's attempting to bridge certain uh, theories of media, media mediation and uh, object-oriented philosophies. So that'll be a, an upcoming episode. Yeah, I think we're, uh, if we want to maybe tell our listeners a little bit about uh, where we see the podcast going, what we'd like to do with this vehicle, uh, you know, in the uh, in the pun intended sense. There, yeah, I mean, we'd like to have some interesting interviews, uh, get some exciting future guests, uh, Aaron uh, and uh, people yet to be named, uh, who we're we're working on acquiring for the show here. Yeah. Um. And, you know, I think the community, uh, just in the media community here, will give us ample opportunity to, again, explore the capacious sense of what it would mean to consider a logistics of perception and uh, perception on various um, fields such as education, art, politics. Um, So all the future guests will help us to really flesh out... uh, this view of a uh, logistics of perception. And, uh, you know, I think as we wind down here, we just like to encourage those of you who are listening to please reach out to us. Uh, I think we can both be, you know, found on Twitter. I'm uh, at Hawkendougal, H-O-C-K-E-N-D-O-U-G-A-L. Uh, and Jason, you are? Yes, I'm at uh, Imminence FTW. For the win, right? So that would be at I-M-M-A-N-C-E-F-T-W. So, you know, if you have any comments, uh, questions, suggestions for things that we talk about, uh, suggestions for people to talk to us, or if you'd like to talk to us on the show, you know, we'd we'd love to hear from you. And, uh, you know, we're really excited to be able to sit down and translate our, I think, frequent conversations about these issues into maybe a, a broader form uh, that, you know, can spark a dialogue with, with people outside of our immediate sphere. Yeah, and uh, hopefully these conversations will be um, entertaining and useful to uh, people listening. So thanks for listening to the first episode. Yeah, uh, thank you. And we'll see you next time on Logistics of Perception. 
Okay.